Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Greetings everybody and welcome to this new episode of the Stargate Archives. And once again I'm joined by Tim. How are you, mate? I'm good. Just when you thought it was safe to come back to your favourite podcast, I'm back. Yeah, but he's back with more Stargate. And judging from the various social media interactions, if I'm not talking about Stargate, then most of the people ignore the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, it's not actually that bad. According to the analytics of Squarespace, most of which I can't understand a word of, it's ticking over quite nicely. Not as good or as high as the good old days of the Gatecast, but then again, I look around the uh, Stargate fandom and there's a lot of Stargate podcasts around these days. I think that's the thing, isn't it? When you've got a lull between a franchise having new content, you then all of a sudden get a lot of sort of groups cropping up to celebrate the back catalogue. Yeah. Surprisingly or not, a lot of them are female hosts as well. I knew when I looked again, the analytics of Gatecast... The listenership was pretty much 52% male, 48% female. And certainly the interactions on social media were predominantly women. Stargate is definitely a fandom that appeals across the boundaries. I think that's because Stargate has never, has, has always been fairly good at not only writing strong female characters, but not feeling the need to have them outdo male counterparts. It's very much... We can be just as good as each other. That's fine. We don't need to compete. Once you have sort of, you know, yes, I'm ignoring sort of, you know, initial sort of scenes in briefing rooms with hideous lines of dialogue. <laughs> How Amanda Tapping managed to say that line with a straight face, I will never know. But I do appreciate in Mobius that she takes the piss out of herself. Yeah, that's one thing that is going to be interesting if, if, I'd like to say when, but it's still an if, they do green light another Stargate show, regardless of what it's going to be. Something's going to have to change, though. I would certainly like to see more female directors, female writers. That's something the original series wasn't overly generous with. Mm. To be fair, they did get a core group of writers and directors, and if they can do the job, you don't tend to look elsewhere unless you're looking for a, you know, a new voice. Mm. When Stargate were being made, the television landscape was vastly different than it would be now you didn't uh, recently had a little hiccup with the uh, various shipping factions on twitter definitely some outspoken jack and daniel fans but that is something you might expect in the modern retelling of stargate Mm. i'm pretty sure there will be like star trek's doing with their shows much more diverse range of cast and characters may not suit everybody if they're looking for we want just we just want more stargate Whatever we do get is not going to be the Stargate we know and grew up on. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You have to accept that Stargate is a product of the 90s onwards. We are not in the 1990s anymore. No. If you carry on trying to write a show the way you did 20 years ago, in fact, 20 and change, Christ, that's a disturbing (laughs) thought. But, you know, if you try and write a show in the back end of 2021 the way you'd write a show in 1997, your show is either going to bomb horrifically 
or it's going to be hailed unintentionally as a great work of satirical genius, whether <laughs> that's what you planned or not. Yeah, and that tends not to pay the bills either, so yeah. you probably won't be around for long. No, and that's the thing. I, ha- I have no doubt that we will get some new form of Stargate sooner or later, whether it's a continuation or, you know, we've paved over, we're starting from scratch, but it's not going to look anything like the original movie or SG-1. That will shake the foundations on many. Personally, while I'd look a continuation two or three years after Universe finished, I said, nope, too far. Time's gone now. SG-1 Atlantis, not a chance of a continuation. I'm sorry. Can't see it ever happening. That time has come and gone. If I'm going to put money on it, it'd be a hard reboot. Maybe even going back to the movie. That by itself might still be very, very interesting. As is often the said... as as is often <laughs> as is often said, the original show hasn't gone anywhere. A reboot, you may not like it, and that doesn't replace what came before it. So we're always going to have Stargate. We're always going to have Richard Dean Anderson and Amanda Tapping, Joe Flanagan, Robert Carlyle, Robert Carlyle in Stargate. That still tickles me. <laughs> that, I know you say it, and it's like you're off your rocker. <laughs> But no, it's a thing that happened. It's like a tweet I did a few months ago when they released the first pictures and trailers for the Kevin Smith He-Man. Yeah. And the internet being the internet automatically decided, ah, it's new, it's bad, it's not what I remember. And I was like, yeah, but that thing that you remember hasn't gone anywhere. Just because Kevin Smith is doing a new He-Man, if 1983 He-Man is your jam, He's still there. The 2002 remake, that's not gone anywhere either. Dolph Lundgren's there if that's really what you're into. And yes, even the Space He-Man from the late 80s is there. If that's your jam, more power to you. But the thing you love doesn't cease to exist because someone's doing something new. At times, fans can be very delicate about what they like, how they perceive themselves in the fandom as a whole. It's a pity, causes a lot of trouble, both positive and negative, as we said. But for us, I hope we do get more Stargate. I hope it is basically on the lines of what we've come to expect, but bring a new outfit. Mm. And on a premium streaming service, because we need the budget. And also, preferably one that I am already subscribed to, Ah, so I do not have to subscribe to something new. Because there comes a point when you're saying, I am not paying another penny for a streaming service compared to what I've got. Or beyond anything else, it gets to the point where realistically you can't. Because it's like, you know, I only get so much money coming through a month. (laughs) I'm not going to get more just because there's a new shiny streaming service that is showing maybe one or two things I have not got otherwise. Right then. Again, this episode of the Archives is going to be talking about a Stargate episode. And Tim has chosen another. If you were with us last week, last week, (laughs) last episode, he let us know what it was. But Tim, do you want to refresh our memory? I'm sticking with the Ben Browder theme and we are going with The Scourge. Well, hey, season nine, episode 17. Right, a few details. Written by Joseph Malozzi and Paul Mully. Directed by Ken Garotti. Ken directed three episodes of SG-1. This, Ethan and Cold Lazarus. Also worked on The Outer Limits, Odyssey 5, Regenesis... Daredevil and the Viking, so there's some serious talent there. That's a hell of a jump, isn't it, Stargate-wise? <laughs> Going from Cold Lazarus. You've, wow. got, you've, you've got to learn, haven't you? 
a few years went by between Cold Lazarus, then Ethan, then this. Just the odd one or two. Yeah. <laughs> Joe and Paul, of course, well, legends in the Stargate writing family. 39 episodes of SG-1, 15 of Atlantis, 12 of Universe, plus teleplays and story credits, as well as creating and writing on Dark Matter and Utopia Falls. It's not an exaggeration to say that they really did write the book on Stargate. Oh, yes. Very nice, Tim. That is one of the greatest props ever devised. This episode premiered in America February the 17th, 2006. We got it February the 21st, so we didn't have to wait long. Germany, July the 10th, 2006, and Japan, June the 4th, 2007. So, the episode opens up. Quick view of Cheyenne Mountain Complex. We jump into the SGC. We're in a hallway. Uh, There's SG-1. Uh, walk and talk, uh, tradition of SG-1 and many, well, many shows really. Hospital dramas, procedurals. They've kind of got it down to a fine art now where they literally practice the line reading backwards so they know where they have to start walking. Genius. Mm. They get to the gate room. I'm not sure I uh, approve of them collecting the weapons from other airmen. I always think, do the ring ahead? I want a P90 for this mission, please. It's a little bit odd, isn't it? And especially because they sort of handed them in the gate room. Yeah. It's like, when did that become a thing? Because normally we're used to seeing you rock up in the gate room, fully kitted out and ready to go. Point of the armory. You know, you sign out your weapon and you don't just get it handed to you. You just don't give it a quick look-see. I'd imagine that... Never been in the military, don't know what it's like, but I would imagine that you strip down the weapon, put it back together, go I'm happy with this. I imagine you do check your weapon as opposed to just trust that the guy that handed it to me knows what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like packing a parachute, isn't it? If you do this professionally, then you pack your own parachute. Mm-hmm. You don't assume somebody else is going to do the job for you. Yeah, if this gun misfires, I know that it will misfire because I didn't do something right. Yeah, if, if I survive this, I'm going to give somebody such a slapping when I get back. Who checked this bloody... Oh, wait, that was me. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, they start going down the gate, or up the gate. Landry comes across a tannoy. Mission scrubbed, SG-1. They've got a new plan. They're going to play babysitter to uh, representatives of the IOA, and they're going to visit the Gamma site. I have one question about the scrubbed mission. Yep. Ham says that they were going to investigate some ancient ruins. It's normally a good thing. Okay, yeah. Tilk, packing a P90. Daniel as is now his way, <laughs> packing a P90. Carter, P90. Ham, on the other hand, has gone for something significantly larger than a P90. It's like, I know you've read every mission report, but what ancient ruins are you going to that the rest of the team don't think they are? Well, as a certain character in another sci-fi series says, you never know when you need grenades. So you're never going to be let down by having too big a weapon. And I love the fact that Landry's laying it on real thick. They know he's talking a load of crap. And he knows they know. Yeah. It's almost as if there could be cameras watching them and reporting back on, you know, how they react to this. Because, yeah, he's uh, playing it straight-faced and then he's out of there. Yeah, poor SG-1. This is the price of fame and fortune. You get to be babysitters. Yeah. Title sequence. Gate room. We see the three VIPs. Chen Zhao, played by Tamlin Tamita. Two episodes of SG-1, two of Atlantis. Recently seen in The Good Doctor and Picard. Jean Lapierre, played by Mark Oliver. Smallville, very prolific voice actor. The English representative, no first name, just Chapman. Andy Maton, supernatural, street legal. And Woolsey, of course. Robert Picardo, everybody. 
it's Robert Picardo. You got to smile because even when you didn't like Woolsey, you like Robert Picardo. I think that's the thing, isn't it? That's the mark of a good actor. You're ambivalent every time you see the name come up because you're like, I like, how can you not like Robert Picardo? Woolsey, however, at this stage of his character evolution, not a fan of. No, he's still very much a bureaucrat at this point. And I think we touched on this before, but I think that's testament to both the writing and the portrayal from Robert Picardo that you end up rooting for Woolsey. Yeah. You wouldn't have put this character development and growth on this character when we first met him. Oh, God, no. Never in a million years would you have said, you know, in a few years, he will be a main character. (laughs) You go, what? No. And more than that, he'll be a main character that you actually like. Yeah. You'll be horrified when you realise you're starting to like him. And then in the end, you're just fully on Team Woolsey. Well, I think when he did the double episode with RDA, you know, you think, you know, I think Jack actually is becoming to like him as well. (laughs) There are some brilliant moments in the return that you... It's in that, it's in that second bit when they're hiding. And Walt is like, oh, what's going on? What's this? And O'Neill's like, I've been sat here with you the whole time. Why do you think I know more than you? <laughs> that is one of my personal bugbears. When I've sat down to watch a movie and somebody says, blah, 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 blah. How do I know? You've seen as much as I Just watch it and get on with it. You wouldn't have thought going in that Robert Picardo... Richard Dean Anderson. You wouldn't have thought that that is actually going to be a comedy pairing in the making. By the end of that two parts, you want more. Yeah, you do. For some reason, I don't know if it's professional or personal, Shen certainly takes a shine to Daniel. Right from the word go. Mm. Breaks out the uh, Mandarin. They have an interesting conversation. There is a transcript if you actually want to know what they're saying. They make a reference to Cameron. Cameron replies in Mandarin. It's the look on Michael Shanks's face. Yes. That is perfect. <laughs> Jen is surprised. Daniel is shocked, embarrassed. Oh, shit. Mortified, I think. <laughs> because it's like, it's all right for her, because odds are Cam's never going to see her again. i got to work with this. Yeah. And he's going to make me pay. And I he's... know he's going to make me pay. Yeah, he's not going to forget that. Mm-mm. That's going to come back and bite me in the ass. We learn that the Gamma site is 24,000 light years away. So, by Stargate standards, it doesn't really matter, but 24,000 light years? Blimey. It's not exactly a trip down to the corner shop, is it? (laughs) Well, they'll never find that, will they? But it's still part of the Stargate network. I think that's the thing, isn't it? The star. I mean, obviously, that is the whole point of it. But the concept of the Stargate does make distance completely irrelevant. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter if you're at you know, the far left end of the galaxy and the planet you're going to is at the far right. You step through the gate, it's like, boom. The closest we get to distance is when we have to dial into another galaxy. Yeah. And even then, that's just the equivalent of, oh, I'll take two steps forward instead of just one. <laughs> you know, we'll give you a slightly longer wormhole sequence to start with, but then for the rest of it, it'll be exactly the same. That's always going to be a problem with the sci-fi show, you know, distance. Uh, something like Star Trek, they had the original warp drive of the TOS era. They recalibrated all the speeds when the TNG era came, so warp 10 was no longer the warp 10 of uh, the original Enterprise. But you jump forward again and you've got transwarp and other FTL systems. You've got to keep expanding and expanding because when an enemy or even a friend can literally appear 
from their star system in yours in minutes, you may have issues writing a narrative that allows that to work. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things when you see a sci-fi show with an FTL system that uses a jump from point A to point something like the Discovery does. It can literally jump from one point of space-time to another more or less instantly. It's a whole different ball game to write a compelling story when you sh- your main protagonist can do that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. You, you can't really then have a ticking clock, can you? No. Well, I do think, you know, sort of, sort of early conversation before we started, I think the best solution ever given to science fiction propulsion did actually come from JMS. Just how fast does, I can't remember if it was a White Star or a Star Fury go. And his answer was, every ship travels at the exact same speed. Yeah. It travels at the speed of plot. Yeah. It'll be there exactly when it's needed. Sci-fi fans, we're we're picky about that sort of thing, aren't we? We know that there are people out there, and God bless them, that all go, hang on a minute, last episode, that ship was travelling at warp 7, and it, it covered 38.9 light years in ship's time, 2 hours, 27 seconds. This week, the same ship doing warp 7 took twice as long to travel half the way. And you go, you're right, but it's not that important, is it? Yeah, you're right. I know you're right. You know you're right. You're showing <laughs> off now, aren't you? The beauty of it, though, is that someone like me will, will go, you know, let it go. And then I'll bring up my own personal issue with a canon subject. Yeah. And that will be just as awkward as them. Your issue with canon is trifling and insignificant. Get out of the way. <laughs> you're giving sci-fi hands a bad name. My issue, on the other hand, is a legitimate one. Quite. Let's face it. If you can't enjoy a show... Everybody that complains is still enjoying the show. I'm sure of that. It takes a certain sort of individual to watch something they don't like just so they can complain about it. Although there are some out there that do that. You know what, though? I genuinely wonder if they don't like what they claim they don't like. They just enjoy complaining more. They like the attention that being negative gets them. But I'm sorry, if you are as genuinely turned off by a show as you are claiming to be, you're not going to sit and watch every episode week after week. You're going to think, life's too short, I've got better things to do, I'm going to watch something I actually like. Yeah, I watched nine seasons of The Walking Dead and I don't think, I've had enough of this. <laughs> I haven't watched it since. Other shows, I've watched half of the pilot episode and thought, nope, this isn't working for me. We'll use Star Trek as the example, because it, you know, it's, it's the one that's currently running. Discovery, I loved. Picard, I enjoyed. Lower Decks, I cannot get on with. <laughs> I've watched the first three episodes. It's not working for me. I'm going to stop watching it. Having decided I don't like it, I'm not going to meticulously know every little thing that happens just so I can tirade on the internet. It's like, I've watched it. I didn't like it. I walked away. Went back a few months later, because sometimes when you watch it originally, you're not in the mood. Yeah. Gave it another whack. Got to three episodes instead of just the first two, but it's like, nah not doing it for me that's the end of that chapter you don't need to carry on watching it just to vent every fandom has got that dark little corner that no one likes to acknowledge exists but we're all very much aware of the fact it's there it's just unfortunate that for the smallest percentage of the fandom they are the most vocal yes indeed and they will not shut up about it until they are absolutely certain that you've got and agree with their point, which means they never shut up because you're never going to agree with them and they don't understand that. If you're Alan, my erstwhile co-host of the Gatecast, you don't want to see Ergo. This is the episode not to watch. 
he asked me. I, I spoke to him on uh, Messenger. And he says, "Oh, I'd like to come on and do a show as long as it's not Ergo." He doesn't like Dom DeLuise for some strange reason. I wouldn't have thought that was possible. Yeah, everybody, everybody likes Dom DeLuise. How could you not like Dom DeLuise? Okay, I'm sat here now, my mind officially blown. <laughs> anyway, back to the episode. I love the fact that Woolsey is very, very nervous about using the Stargate. Pleasing, isn't it? It is. It's pleasing. You'd have thought maybe, you know, being part of the IOA, your first week of being on there, you know, you've signed all the NDAs, you get a trip to the Stargate. Obviously not. And that's the thing, Woolsey by this point has been floating around for a couple of years. Yeah. And you think, and you've never gone off world before? I mean, they made a point of it, the fact that, you know, Hammond very rarely went off world. So when he did, that was a big thing. Yeah, but given how, I don't want to use the word interfering, but intrusive the IOA is, you would have thought they would have hit on the concept of sending Woolsey through the gate, see what's actually going on. Would have occurred to them a hell of a lot sooner. Yeah. We get to Gamma Site. We see... Totally not a quarry and forest in Canada. <laughs> well, yeah, you want something familiar, don't you? <laughs> we want an alien world, but we don't want it too way. At a Porsche, we'll settle for two moons in the sky. That's, that's about as foreign as we like to go. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're pretty flexible on the number of moons, but, you know, <laughs> otherwise we like green trees, rocks. A blue sky is good. Yes, we see a very drab-looking building. Of, it were probably like Lego bricks. Do you think IKEA show prefab concrete structures? Uh, they probably did in their early days, probably during the war or something like that. I was about to say, it has got a very flat-pack feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah. Can you imagine putting that together and having some nuts and bolts loose at the end? <laughs> Who's first going through the door? Not me. Yeah, we see some F-302s there, so interesting. Uh, we learned that this planet was chosen for its radioactive ionosphere, which puts a dampener on the ability to beam. They mentioned because of the gates. I would have thought, yeah, but also so they don't beam troops down. Surprised only 30 scientists at the base as well. I expected more. But 30 scientists, support they don't actually say support personnel, how many military are there. So there could easily be two or 300 people there. I'm willing to bet if there's 30 scientists then you've got to be in triple figures for the military. Yeah. The military could take care of the catering, the janitorial services and all that sort of stuff. But associates, assistants, scientists always need them as well because they don't like doing their own paperwork. Oh, not not admin. <laughs> yeah, admin. <laughs> Putting together papers to get funding and all that sort of stuff. So difficult. Just look, scientists, word of advice, build weapons. You will always get funding. We meet Dr. Myers, played by Tony Alcantar. Very busy actor, Arrow, Continuum, Once Upon a Time. His voice acting resume is huge. He's also a dialect coach. He's working on Spacebugs, R75. A breed of uh, insects they believe are being not supplied, not infected, uh, distributed by the Priors. Interesting concept. Also a concept I kind of think they didn't really know what to do with, which is probably why they don't get mentioned again. <laughs> no, they don't. Spacebugs. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll go with it, I'll go with it. Like the idea that they, well, we see them, they're just very sedate creatures. They're making tortoises look like Speedy Gonzales. They're not in a hurry to do nothing, are they? <laughs> uh, but they switch the lights off and suddenly they accelerate, they react well to being in darkness. They use echolocation, 
again that indicates that they like burrowing they like underground being on the surface is not their natural habitat makes a lot of sense uh, they come up with some ideas why you know or they can eat vegetation they can destroy crops without you even seeing it farmer goes to bed one night he's got a full crop next morning they're gone devious really mm. back in the hallways talking about the chinese could be putting pressure on the ioa begs a lot of questions how powerful are china within the ioa what level of funding do china offer up i do love the beginning of that exchange why are we here and Daniel's like, well, the IOA. And he's like, Daniel Jackson, the problem is not the IOA. And then Daniel's like, okay, the Chinese government. <laughs> and then when they're just back and forth, and it's like, Tilk, what do you think? I think I should have stayed with the talk. Yeah. <laughs> there are some subjects, Tilk, I'm not particularly bothered about. I don't really need to hear. Well, and especially as, you know, recent episodes, Tilk has not had much luck with politics. No, he's, he's had enough of that. He's a, he's a man of action. Give him a problem and he'll solve it. The Jafar have very much discovered that it's much more fun just being warriors, being politicians. Ugh. Yeah. Does anybody know of a gould who's interested in the admin job? <laughs> or better yet, is there a gould we can go and harass and beat up? You feel like at some point there's either a face-to-face -face or a subspace communication between Tilk and O'Neill, where O'Neill's very cheery knowing what's going on. It's like, Tilk, how are you going? You're just like, why did you not warn me, O'Neill? <laughs> uh, I tried. I tried to tell you, but you didn't listen. Too busy watching Star Wars. You've been hanging around with me for eight years. You know my opinion of politicians. Hell, you've been present on more than one <laughs> occasion when I've been telling politicians exactly what I think of them. Yeah, till you heard the unedited version of, of Jack's rant. <laughs> we get to one of the labs. Dr. Myers and Dr. Pullman are there. Myers is going to be running some tests on the bugs. Uh, gets a rather unappetizing piece of vegetation, which they just ignore. I would have thought at this point he was well past this sort of experimentation. But for some reason, he decides to try the daily meatloaf. It's a meatloaf Monday. I feel like this is the point where the universe should have built-in idiot sirens. And whenever someone is about to do something that can only ever be a monumentally dumb thing to do, the sirens and the klaxons go off. Yeah. I can only ever assume that scientists in science fiction have never watched science fiction. <laughs> because every fibre of your being should be saying, I'm about to do something very, very stupid. I should stop and carry on my typing. Yeah, these days, I assume where I work... We do pretty much exactly what any modern facility does. We decide to do anything new or different. The risk assessment's got to be worked out. Potential to go wrong. What can happen? What sort of safety equipment do we need? You've got an alien bug and you're going to give it a new food source. Maybe just take one of those bugs, isolate it, have a flamethrower ready. Mm -hmm. Not just decide to... <laughs> Why are we even eating our lunch in the lab? I know. I mean, surely that's a sort of big red cross in the sort of, you know health and safety books it's like uh, no 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 this is why we have a metal it's not as if this is a time critical mission really hmm. you can afford to have time to go to the cafeteria sit down enjoy his meatloaf read the latest publication on i don't know genetics or whatever but it's almost as if the you know the students that run to the commissary grab the sandwich and rush back <laughs> they can get back playing doom online or something and especially as you know we've seen you know just how zippy these bugs are in bright light they're not going anywhere i think you can afford to actually take your hour lunch break 
and you know <laughs> go away we're at the canteen we see the vips uh hold, hold order around one table except for jen who's uh, off on her own daniel walking for a bit of a dessert he changes his mind he goes and sits down next to her you've really buried the lead go on then we are forgetting teal stocking up i don't even know what he's stock oh the but corn dogs corn dogs there we go piling his plate <laughs> Yeah, you can picture him having a little grin on his face doing it. I've never had a corn dog. Never want a corn dog. Doesn't look appetising, does it? I don't think I've even wicked it to see exactly what it is. But whatever it is, I don't want one. Well, whatever they are, Tilk clearly loves them, or yes. at the very least, assumes he is going to. <laughs> yeah, no matter what it tastes like, he will not be defeated by a corn dog. And this is a very interesting conversation that Jen and Daniel have. I mean, obviously, she's looking at it from a government point of view. She even says, whatever I write here doesn't really make a difference. My government's already made up its mind. It does not like the way the SGC are running the programme. The promises that were made have not been kept. The Chinese military, the Chinese intelligence services, they can see the strides the US military are making, and they know it's from alien technology, and they're not getting their fair share of it. But she's not making threats. She's indicating quite clearly the future might be different very, very soon. And it will probably be a quite legitimate change of circumstances. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? We are actually rooting for the bad guys in this situation. Because the US government, I hasten to add, you know, fictional US government, because clearly real governments would never ever do anything like <laughs> it. Of course not. Signed a treaty and made agreements. And they are not living up to their end of that deal. China is right to be pissed. This isn't the episode where this is actually mentioned. I think it was Colonel Chekhov who actually talked to Chen. I think he says, look, let the Americans take the risks. Let their men die if necessary. You will benefit in the long run. I mean, Russia, obviously, because of the DHD, etc., etc., got a very good deal out of it, even though they were never quite happy how their people got onto various SG teams, and certainly not very happy how the first one fit. Listen to Russia, China. They operated a Stargate programme for, what, a month? <laughs> yeah. And they... I don't want to say they bodged it, but, you know... Well, they nerve-gassed the entire base. They needed SG-1 to come and clean up their mess. So, you know, maybe you'll want to listen to the cautionary tales of Russia's Stargate programme. I mean, Jen's being pretty honest. You know, what would you have done if we'd have had the Stargate right from the start? And Daniel's fair. You know, if you were doing it for the betterment of uh, the human race, I would have been happy to work for you. Yeah, I believe him. Well, yeah, because that's the thing. He's always been the civilian. And as it is, he was never really accepting an offer from the US military. He was accepting an offer from Catherine. Yeah. The fact that Catherine was in deep with the US Air Force, it's sort of irrelevant and not at the same time. From Daniel's point of view, he was accepting an offer from Catherine, not the US Air Force. If it had been, I want to say, General West, yeah. if it had been him that had rocked up to Daniel's oh-so-successful seminar, I think he would probably have told him to take a running jump. So I think Daniel is on the up-and-up. If the pitch China was making was the same as the pitch he was getting... And if it was a pitch that was being made by someone not in a uniform, yeah, he would have signed on for Chinese Stargate. Right, we're in the lab. The bugs have been fruitful and they have multiplied. Oh, look. They're like bloody tribbles. Look at that. The stupid decision has had unfortunate consequences. Yeah. Who would have thunk? 
you've got to be seriously worried because that containment chamber is rather packed. Yeah, and all of a sudden you're very aware of the fact, should we be making these things out of plastic? (laughs) And with hinges? Because surely eventually you're going to get so much pressure that, oh look, the little dory things have popped open. And it's not as if we haven't seen this sort of thing at the SGC where nanites have eaten through the rubber containment seals and the gloves, etc. You'd think that if they go into, well, I say you go into this expense, but have we seen it? It is a, looks like a prefab building. But if you're doing this sort of research, then you want self-contained labs, serious fail-safe, maybe even mini nukes underneath them. If something should ever get through, you want to be able to wipe it clean off the face of the planet. This is how dangerous it can be. It would even be better to have this in orbital space station. I'm starting to wonder if there might be like a tier ranking off-world bases. I'm wondering <laughs> if your top-tier personnel, obviously, you're at your SGC or you're at Lancis. Yeah. Your good ones, you know, they're not the best, but, you know, at the same time, if your lives were in their hands, you wouldn't panic. Well, they go to the Alpha site. We're at the Gamma site. I'm thinking the C-grade students. Yeah, supposedly the less dangerous experiments, the less critical. But, hey, I do like the emblem of the Gamma site. See that on the wall in a few other scenes. That is a nice emblem. Maybe that's how they try and compensate for it. It's like um, You have a good patch. Gamma base, that's just the fact it's Gamma, so you have to know there's at least an Alpha and a Beta in front of us. And yeah. that's not including the SGC. So basically we're like fourth tier at best. If we have a nice flashy logo... Well, it's all about marketing, isn't it? It'll create the illusion of importance. Right, so what do you think about the fail-safe procedures when the containment chamber bursts? Would you have expected an industrial size hoover to clean up the mess? That's impressive. It does always, of course, lead the question of where do the bugs go? I think they just dumped them outside, hence the bugs getting outside. Mm. Me, I would probably have gone for you seal the room down and... You flash fire the whole bloody... When you open that up again, everything is burnt to a crisp. Or the industrial strength hoover leads into a furnace. Yes. But as it is, you're very much aware it's like, well, bugs have gone somewhere, but we're only like 20 minutes into the episode, so (laughs) you kind of have to assume that wherever the bugs have gone is not their final destination. No. Because this was all entirely too easy. Yeah, the, the fact that they opened up the lab... Keycard, code, without a visual inspection. No cameras in the lab to have a no. quick look. These bugs fall. It wouldn't have taken, what about two or three? I'd gallantly held on to the sink and then survived while their brothers and sisters were swept off to Nirvana or wherever they went. And also, you know, bugs have breached containment. An alarm's gone off. No one seems to be coming to investigate <laughs> said alarm. No, it's well... Like, I wouldn't have been opening that door with a, without having at least three burly FFs with big machine guns. I was going to say flanking me, but ideally stand in front of me being the ones <laughs> opening the door. Just in case anything that might not have got sucked out is waiting and is pissed. I would be desperately trying to figure out how to cover my own arse. That too. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we see Myers. He gets bit by one of these bugs. He squishes it. Lots of goo, lots of blood. That's not good. That can't be good. You just know when you get bitten by an alien insect. Yeah, the idea that, look, it's so alien, it can't affect you. 
no, I do not believe that. <laughs> it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've seen enough episodes, again, of science fiction, I assume he apparently doesn't exist in the Stargate universe, but I know when a main character gets bitten by Alien of the Week, some funky hijinks will ensue, but everything will be right by the end of the episode. When you've got to worry is when a character that has never been met before gets bitten by Alien of the Week. Yeah, anything can happen then. That's like, you know, no offence <laughs> to you, Mr. Science Man, but you ain't no Cam Mitchell or Sam Carter or Tilk. And don't want to say that you're expendable, but you are the brain trust that decided to feed the unidentified alien bug meatloaf. Yeah, serves you right. Right, we jump forward a bit. We're in the hallway. Colonel Pearson, played by John Prowse. He's been in three episodes of SG-1. He's talking with the uh, IOA VIPs. And never has there been a man that wants these people away from him as soon <laughs> as humanly possible, but knows he cannot say what he wants to say. Yeah, so you've got, got the feeling that this is not a man who suffer fools gladly or has an overabundance of patience, but he's having to grin and bear it at the moment. This is probably not a man who's fantastically happy being lumbered with scientists, especially gamma scientists. But to then add into that mix, politicians. Oh, yeah. Especially a Chinese politician who is not happy about the fact that they haven't seen everything. And he's got to explain that some of these are security, US military. You understand. (laughs) You know damn well if this was a Chinese base you wouldn't be showing the American visitors everything either. Quite right. This is a man who is praying for a prior to come through the Stargate or, (laughs) you know, or a Hattack to suddenly appear in orbit. Something he can deal with on his terms. This is a man who is painfully out of his comfort level, but knows there's not a damn thing he can do about it. He's just got to ride it out and hope that, Once they're through the Stargate and it's closed, he can just slope off to his quarters and either have a drink or a cry. Unfortunately for him, he gets to do neither because suddenly Dr. Myers appears. He looks a little worse for wear. He's incoherent. He collapses. It's wet dripping off him. He does not look good at all. He plays his reactions to this so well. It's a really fine line between A, oh, thank God, a distraction, B, oh, crap, this doesn't look good, and C, oh, crap, this doesn't look good, and they've seen it already. Yeah. Next, we arrive in the Gamma Science gate room, which actually, is considering that that's a CGI gate, my guess is that actually that's not a redressed SGC gate room. I wonder how much of that is matte painting or CGI itself. I'm definitely thinking it's not a redress because it definitely looks a lot smaller. Yeah. I mean, the corridor, the corridors in the base are very obviously just our standard SGC corridors because a corridor is a corridor is a corridor, especially if, you know, US flat pack. Either way, it's an interesting room. Dr. Pullman, Cam, Sam, Pearson talking about the R-75, Mize followed protocol. I don't think the protocol was actually up to date or no. relevant. Again, they're missing several points. It's like, yeah, he followed protocol, but let's have a look at his actions prior to following protocol, shall yes. we? Because I think yes. that's where the rub is. They're no longer vegetarians or omnivorous, or as Pullman says, carnivorous, actually. 
that's, that's not good. It takes a brave man to one-up Carter in the science stakes, but to do so smugly. It's like, that's the bold action of a man who is very confident that he is never going to have to deal with Carter again professionally. Or so he hopes. Yeah. Oh, we're just checking. The mummy. The mummy is well known for having a lot of scarab beetles that react very much like R75. And the mummy came out in 1999. This, of course, is 2006. I wonder if there was a little... Hmm. I wonder. This is entirely possible. Also, the mummy, great flick. The 1999 oh, yeah. one. Yes. I actually bought that in 4K. I've got to have that. That Tom Cruise one. <laughs> Woolsey wants to go home. Wants to take the eye away home. I'm surprised at this. Woolsey, bureaucrat, reports, procedures. He must know by heart the limitations on what they can do when this sort of alarm has been raised. Nobody can leave this base. Nobody can go to Earth under these conditions. The base is under lockdown. There's what he knows as a bureaucrat, but he's never been a bureaucrat on the wrong side of the quarantine. Easy to make laws and procedures behind a desk. You don't have to live with them. Especially when that desk is nice and safe somewhere in the Pentagon, a long way away from the action. If you're going to fight a war, do it from a desk. I think that's very much the theme for Wolsey this season, in that the closer he is to what's going on, the worse it is. Because we've seen him earlier on with the Anubis clone. And that doesn't pan out fantastically well for Wolsey. Every suggestion I'm making is proved to be catastrophically wrong. And in true bureaucrat style, he doesn't think, hmm, maybe a career change is in order. He just doubles down on it. Surprisingly, one person is going back to Earth. Myers. The one person we know is infected is the one we're letting <laughs> out of Warren, huh? Well, I sure hope that medical rescue containment box he's in is safe and secure. What are, the, what are the chance of it being made of flimsy plastic? I mean, seriously. Look, CGI in this episode isn't good. Let's admit that now. It isn't good. So when you see him start shaking his head, we see the bugs start coming out, they fill up the container, they breach it, they come swarming out everywhere. Let's just say that, OK, theatrical movies have done this effect a little bit better. To be honest... SG-1 has done swarms better. Yeah. You look at this and you think, when the producers were working out the budget for this, they got to a point where, this is going to be too expensive, lads. If you want these guest stars, we're going to have to make a few cutbacks. And this might have been one of them. I like the idea that this had been written well in advance. Sort of, and then other episodes with, you know, bigger set pieces, Captain Darkness, like, right, what's the budget left for the Scourge? Oh, um, help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, who were directing this? Oh, Ken. Right, he'll, he'll, he can he can make something on a low budget. We've seen Gold Lazarus, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, we get to the briefing room. Uh, Sam and Woolsey. They're about bug eggs, meat eaters. They actually believe that this could be confirmation that this is a weaponized animal, a weaponized creature. It's still a leap. I mean, this could quite actually be a naturally life cycle. I think that's the one place where I think this episode really does misstep. I don't think they should have linked this back to the priors and the Ori. I think this would have just worked so much better if it was a single species that's native to the planet we just happen to have picked for the gamma site. Yeah, but they've done that before. That's never stopped them before either. Yeah, but as it is, if you, you lose the Ori stuff from the episode, all you really lose is about 90 seconds worth of dialogue. Doesn't really affect anything else that happens in the episode and won't affect anything else going forward. 
and you've got yourself a nice little filler standalone episode. Yeah. Instead, you try and link it to your ongoing plot, which is ultimately a waste of time because the bugs never get mentioned or seen again. That might have been just policy. Whenever we introduce anything, give it a hook that we can tie it to the ORI if we need to. And if we don't, we don't. Simple as that. Yeah, because you think, well, maybe sort of, and then if you're going to have the bugs reappear in a second episode, and that's when people go, oh, maybe it's prior related? But to just try and connect the dots, the, the bugs are prior related, when as far as we know, this is the only planet they've been seen on, and as far as we're aware, we're the only sort of, you know, air quote, sentient life on the planet. Did they actually say where they got the bugs from? I don't think they ever specify one way or the other, so I just naturally assume they're native to that planet. No, the Gamma site is a cure. We've got to take that as gospel. So these bugs came from another world, which may have had an Ori presence. It's weird. That's maybe something that I'm not overly happy about. Maybe if they'd have done more background on where they came from, laid that down a bit, then the idea that it was Ori and a local prior, that would have made a bit more sense. But like you say, they didn't really do enough to make that a concrete idea. They did too much for you to really ignore. They make a point of it being important. And as you say, it isn't important because they never take it up again. One thing's for sure, these bugs, the R75, they're, they're annoying little things because they get into the power generators and the lights go out. Then they say they've lost the, the gate room, other areas of the base. There are words you just don't want to hear, and losing the gate room is up there. When you haven't got a spaceship, that's rather critical. Mm -hmm. You can lose the canteen, you can lose the uh, infirmary. Don't lose the gate room. No, don't never, never lose the gate room because the gate room is the one place we really, really need. Because, you know, if all else fails, we're going to lose the base. Everyone to the mess hall doesn't quite have the same ring as everyone through the gate. No, it doesn't. We're not exactly going to... No, but we'll at least have ice cream. <laughs> Pearson confirms that uh, he's lost some of his men. Daniel, you lost the gate room. We need it back. Sounds like a plan. Pearson basically orders uh, Woolsey and the uh, IOA, go with my men, we'll get you to a safe location. Deem a safe in the circumstances. Basically, get out of the base, away from here. And Woolsey, I don't know if Woolsey's being really awkward or just being practical. We look, we're going to leave the base. These people are under my charge. I want the best people guarding me. I don't know your people. I don't know your men. I know SG-1. I want them to protect us. It's hard to argue against it, even if you don't particularly like the idea that he's telling the ranking military officer how to deploy his people. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's that age-old... It's when you, at this point, I think it's safe to say Wolsey is probably the most afraid he has been his entire life. Oh, yeah. When you're afraid, you fall back on what works. And what's always worked for Wolsey up to this point is strict adherence to the rules, which is SG1 was sent here to do a very simple job. The situation has significantly gone, done a full 180, but SG1 are going to carry on doing the job they were given to do regardless of the fact that SG-1 are probably much better spent trying to help deal with the bug situation. You were sent here to look after us. God damn it, look after us is what you are going to do, and I don't care if you don't like me for saying it. Because the looks that Woolsey is getting from everybody not a part of the IOA, even Daniel is looking at him like he's never heard anything so stupid. And also, I think this is a really good episode for something else, which is Christopher Judge's what the f*** looks. Gotta say, Christopher over the years, his acting talents 
blossomed. I don't know if it's the fact that he just got more comfortable being in this cast. He came to understand his place in the show and by extension, he made sure he got a bigger role, even if he had to write the scripts himself. But if you're going to stand in the background, emote. Always emote. Oh, definitely. And if there's one thing that Christopher Judge can do, it is emote. Yes. We get onto the surface of the planet. Eamon Walker is leading the team, played by Jason McKinnon. Woolsey, still complaining. Why couldn't we take a jeep? Well, it's 10 kilometres over rough ground. There are no roads. <laughs> 10 kilometres to an unmanned research station, which doesn't sound too safe, but it's 10 kilometres away from the books. You could say haunted house. The key feature at this moment is it's 10 kilometres away from where we know the bugs currently are. Yes. So that's a good place to be. At this point, I assume that maybe one or two people within SG-1 remembers the briefing where it says, you know, uh, they, they might be able to burrow underground. Tremors? Have you, anybody seen Tremors? Just because that's what this episode turns into. Oh, you know Tilk's seen Tremors. <laughs> and at that point, Tilk stops. He looks around. What's he doing? And then we hear the rumbling, and indeed the bugs are burrowing through the ground. Run away! At least run away to some rocky ground, which the bugs don't seem to be able to tunnel through granite or anything like that. But if you're on a bit of loam or soil, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Rocks are our friends. Yeah. Unfortunately, we lose one of the airmen. What a way to go. But, oh God, the CGI is bad. It's bad. You're sort of watching it, and you mentioned the mummy. I kind of think the effects were better in 1999. <laughs> there was a lot more detail on the scarabs than there are on the bugs. Again, the lighting of inside the pyramid, you got the, the jeweled carapace here. It's, it's pretty much just a black blob. In fact, the bugs could have been blobs, could have been slugs, something like that, and worked just as well. Yeah, they've not got much definition to them, have they? No, they haven't. But they may quit work at the airmen. Rest in peace. So they head for a cave, SE-1 and cave, science fiction and caves. There's a long-standing tradition that caves are good. Worst thing, isn't it? Science fiction and a cave. It automatically becomes a 50-50 split. Cave is either going to be salvation or cave is going to be home to something much, much worse. My first thought being the Voyager episode where they're marooned on the planet. We're running from the natives. We'll go and hide in a cave. Oh, look, giant slug monster lives in the cave. <laughs> well, let's face it, anybody that runs into a cave in the American Midwest is could probably find a grizzly in there or somewhere. And you know what? Yes, because having recently just watched Back to the Future 3, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to hide from the Indians and the cavalry in the cave. What's in the cave? Oh, look, a bear. Ah. <laughs> uh, they get to this cave. The members of the IOA go inside. SG-1 stay at the cave mouth. They use the weapons fire to create a concussive blast, which... Using the echolocation, probably that's what drives the bugs away. Of course, the only problem is they can have to continue use their ammo up whenever the bugs appear to kind of distract them. That's the problem when earth weapons are the solution, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, okay, how many bullets do we have? Why couldn't they have been vulnerable to zap fire? Because zaps just keep <laughs> going and going and going. All them sparkly things that used to fly through you. Yeah, we had zats. They worked. And at this, at this point, we seem to have we seem to have all but forgotten about Zats. I think Carter's the only one who continually has a Zats. Even Tilk has just gone full-on at Earth Weapon. Yeah. It's always kind of sad. We jump back to the SGC. There's Walter and Landry. 
looking at the uh, sensor data from the gate room on, on the gamma site, switch to the motion detectors and we see the outline of the buildings and lots of little blobby things moving around. That's not good. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lee makes an appearance. Dr. Lee, of course, played by Bill Dow. Supernatural, X-Files, iZombie. I think it was in The Flash as well. 20 episodes of SG-1, 7 of Atlantis, and a couple of episodes of SGU. Always a pleasure to see Dr. Lee. He's rather talkative. The general doesn't appreciate this level of verbosity. I think Landry's fine with it, under certain conditions. And when you've lost contact with a base is not the time for, you know, lots and lots and lots and lots of chats. Like, I really kind of need you to get to the point. Yeah, and you know, Dr. Lee really isn't doing that. No, Dr. Lee is not a get-to-the-point person. <laughs> it's when he's telling the story about how he was never good with bugs, and he just looks at Andrew like, you probably want to hear the story later, and Andrew's like, or not. <laughs> it takes him a few heartbeats to think, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> when he has got that look like he's about to like, oh, no, wait, I'm with you. Dr. Lee confirms that with the data he's got, he'll be able to create some sort of toxin to kill the bugs. Landry is satisfied with that. Uh, Unfortunately, it's going to be very much, well, what would be the word? It's a final solution. Oh, yeah. We are going to kill those bugs. Protocol CR-91. Anything else that happens to be alive on that planet. Given time, I probably can devise something to hurt that particular bug. But surely that's the whole point of the experimentation on the gamma site. Hmm. Not feeding them to see how they reproduce. How to kill them efficiently. There is also one line of dialogue from Dr. Lee that I think almost gets overlooked because it comes from Dr. Lee. Again, we mentioned before, Dr. Lee off-screen, scientific genius. Dr. Lee on-screen, let's be kind, he's a bit of a bumbling nerd. (laughs) But the one line that I think is really useful is when he talks about how they were originally planning on using the bug as a potential solution to the cutter from the Lucian Alliance. Yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. And that kind of goes against the idea that this was an all-right weapon. It sounds more like it was just a naturally occurring hmm. insect with some peculiar habits. But I say it's, it's almost a blink and you miss it line. You sit there and you think, that's actually really devious. It is because it would be virtually impossible to prove who was behind it. It's just an insect. It's also a typically kind of US military plan because it's like, okay, you're going to introduce the bugs to Planet Blah to deal with, okay, that's fine. How are you going to ensure that the bugs eat the Casa and only the Casa? Or is that not a problem we're worried about? Is it very much going to be, <laughs> well... Over there needs to deal with over there's problems, and you're over there. Yeah, that would, I imagine, the some of the military planners thinking, look, we're going to solve this problem. We're not going to be worrying about the consequences of that problem yet. We may have to address that in the future, but that is the future. This is the solution to the problem. We'll only deal with anything that comes about on it if it rears its head in, you know, like two or three seasons' time. Yeah, sometime later. The bugs have evolved to the point where they are now building starships and they're coming for us. Hopefully not our fault. How is it not your fault? It's because I wasn't here when... I was not here (laughs) for the original plan. That was three seasons (laughs) ago. We've had car change since then. I didn't even exist then. Now, if you want me to solve this, hire better writers. Right, we're back at the cave. Shen asks, is there a plan of action? Again, good chemistry between her and Daniel. 
almost flirty at this point. Mm. I think she's got a certain freedom because, as she said, doesn't matter what she puts in her report. It's basically a formality at this point. She's basically free to say, look, there's no point me being a stereotypical bitch character that everyone is expecting me to be here because the decision's already been made. I'm really just here for appearances and I am right now in the exact same danger that you are as a result of it. So actually, I think I'm more pissed with my bosses than I am against the US military because right now I really need to be yay US Air Force because <laughs> yeah. you guys are basically going to save me. So yeah. What the hell? Why not? I'll be nice. And, you know, the fact that you're not exactly uneasy on the eye, I'm guessing it doesn't make the situation any more difficult. They get to the point where he asks us a rat, oh, this is not the time and the place. Maybe, you know, when uh, we're back on Earth and we survive being eaten by aliens, and then perhaps. And this is where also Daniel confirms that, yeah, I'd, I'd have worked for the Chinese government, the Chinese military, if I believed what they were doing was in the best interest of everybody. And Shen basically, basically, was it, I may hold you to that someday. Simple line, but so much potential for the narrative, where it could go. Chen, all I'm going to say to you, if you are seriously going to flirt with Daniel Jackson, <laughs> you need to look at his track history. Yeah, it's not good, is it? The only way you could right now be in any more danger is if you were hitting on Carter. Because <laughs> all I'm saying, people that show an attraction to Daniel quite often wind up getting a snake in them. And that's not a euphemism, folks. <laughs> Eamon Walker, he's still guarding the cave. And we see some movement under his skin. It's not good. No, I'm surprised he didn't really feel that. I wonder if there's some sort of numbing agent the bug gives out. Either way, yep, we feel that may be the last we see of him. There's also another really blink-and-you-miss-it moment in this episode that, for me, tells you so much about Cam's character. It's he's actually taken the time to check on him even though it's just that yeah. little, you okay? You kind of get the feeling that he's probably fairly new at the job. And even if he's not, this is a lot. And the fact that Walker, he's already seen, I assume, one of his colleagues, one of his friends, die by the bugs. Mm -hmm. His platoon, the people that he's trained with, he may have left them at the base. You know, he might be feeling, I should be with my friends. I, should be, I shouldn't be guarding these bunch of sodding bureaucrats, not them. The fact that uh, he's with SG-1, he may, he may know of SG-1. He may know of Mitchell, he may have some respect for them, may not. But like you say, a good commander, he's taking the time, you're okay. Yeah, gives a shout if you need anything. Unfortunately, the next morning, Walker's missing. We've got a good idea of what's going on. Also in the initial, not just it's not just sort of Cam checking on him, it's Walker not being too proud to actually say that, actually kind of rattled, which again, probably a very generous way of saying that, you know, he's freaked. Yeah, yeah. That tells you a lot about Cam's character, that this guy that probably knows of him by reputation, but very likely this is the first time to have actually met him. And he's not the sort of the typical sort of TV trope there would be for, oh, no, I've, I've got to impress Cam. I've got to try and look really good. But he's just like, no, I'm kind of really not, actually. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, the recruiting sergeant never mentioned anything about sodding fleshy dimbug. When I signed up, this wasn't. And yeah, and so they came in here and I got told about, you know, aliens that look like us, but they're basically snakes in control. It's like, yeah, OK, that was a bit of a head turner, but this is something else. Do we get hazard pay? Yeah, it all, eventually it always comes down to money. Do we get hazard pay? <laughs> Does this count as overtime, time and a half? I mean, what, what, are we, what are we talking here? I really feel like we deserve something. 
Right, so they discover Walker is missing. Already decided that they're going to have to go at least to the 302s. They go in search. They come across the body. Well, they see see the boot at first. Then, miraculously, there's a bush. It just happens in the way, so they have a nice slow reveal. It's never good when you just see the boot. <laughs> no. Okay. The body is motionless. Seriously motionless. But then, yep. <laughs> He's alive. It was better when he was motionless. Oh, and I don't mean God. from a story point of view, I mean from a CGI point of view. Yeah, it wasn't good, was it? It's like you kind of think, you've shown that moment once, a little bit better, but not so much. You could probably have just shown our characters reacting to that, and we could have connected the dots about what was happening. If push came to shove, get a skeleton and dress it in Air Force uniform. Job done. And that'd look freaky. Yeah, as I say. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to work out what's happened there. Yeah. Instead, you decide to go with show, don't tell, which is usually a better policy, but not always. And in this instance, it's like, no. Nah. You're scraping the bottom of what has already been a very lacklustre barrel. Yeah, something simple. I think it, Daniel who originally saw the boot, wasn't it? Mm. He calls Cam. Cam looks up. You see it from, from the point of view of the body, so we see Cam looking down, and expression on his face, not annoyance, anger, compassion, and then we see him reach down, and then we see he's got dog tags in his hand. Yep, there you go. Much simpler, more emotional, saves God knows how much money on special effects, although those special effects simply cost a lot of money. We know exactly what happened to Walker, we know how it affected the rest of SG-1. As you says, Cameron went out of his way, Make sure the man under his command is feeling okay. And he's lost somebody else. Right, the F-302s. I'm not sure what the plan was. As I said, how are you going to land them? Because they need a long airstrip. They haven't quite got the, the hovering capabilities down pat yet, like some of the Gwal ships can do. Maybe these are experimental 302s. And that's Maybe. what they were working on. <laughs> not as luck would have it. The team split up. Tilk and Cam go towards the base. They have a, a close encounter with shaky ground as the bugs travel underneath them. Stand very still. We're hunting rabbit. Nice scene. Very easy to film. Rely on the actors reacting to pretty much nothing. Although it did look actually like they were standing on, you know, a hydraulic plate or something. Because it didn't look like that was CGI. That would look like a practical effect. And also I think a scene that simple works if you can rely on the chemistry of your actors to carry the scene. Yeah. And when you're talking about Ben Browder and Christopher Judge, chemistry is just kind of a given. And I especially like this because Tilk and Cam are still kind of at an awkward stage where Cam is trying his best, but Tilk is very on the fence. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. I'm happy to deal with you professionally. Don't know I'm ready to be a mate just yet. Cam says, you know, something I like, what I like about you, you know, you're, you're always positive. <laughs> and... In many ways, Tilk is. He does see, he always has seen a future that would be better for his people, that would be better for him. The risk he took, better future for his son and his wife. He comes across, like say, obviously very stoic, very contained, but when he does let himself go, he is a very positive personality. I also love the fact that we're in a life or death situation, killer alien bugs, but we can talk about movie night. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and I wouldn't have picked this film, Tilk fancied watching. No, again, but again, we we covered this. We know Tilk has got some random taste. Yeah. And also, I think this is probably the only moment where I think Ben Browder forgets he's not playing John Crichton. 
because when he reacts with my boy blue it's like oh okay that was john crichton rather than cam mitchell the mask <laughs> the acting mask clipped there just a little bit ben to be honest i don't think i've seen old school since it came out it has been a while also i just like the idea that sg1 under cameron mitchell does movie nights <laughs> yeah. kind of can't see the four of them with o'neill doing that O'Neill normally was. What are you doing here? Splint <laughs> the group sort of splintering off and doing things, you know, like we have seen Kilk and O'Neill doing stuff. But all four of them together? Unless it is the completely unplanned I'll turn up at Jack's house and then a couple of minutes later, oh look, you're here too. Yeah. Who would have thought? Oh hey, look, even Hammond's turned up. It's a party. <laughs> it was like a scene from the Hobbit, isn't it? No knock, who's there? Oh you. No knock, somebody else. <laughs> Although automatically when Hammond turns up, it's like, oh, God, what's wrong? Yeah. Because there's no way you've just come to drink beer. No, definitely not. Right, the bugs have passed on, and then we hear a huge explosion in the distance. It's even heard in the cave. We see him go to a cliff, and they look across a valley, and they see that the, the base has been, well, not levelled, but pretty much destroyed. They believe the self-destruct system was activated, or at least was tripped. I would like to think that Pearson did it as a last resort but the way they actually talk about it they think it may have just been an accident and also again it's the Wolsey character trope at this point of asking the stupid question sam has been with you the whole time yeah she knows as much as you know yes she's probably got enough experience that she can draw some conclusions but she doesn't 100 percent know without having seen or been told what's happened why do you think people know more than you when you are there with them they are experiencing the same thing at the same time as you are. I know O'Neill and Carter are good, but they are not omniscient. No, it's being able to identify the munitions that were responsible for that big bang, exactly how far away it was based on uh, the volume that the noise hits you. Also, you're in a cave. They expect a lot from SG-1 at times. Unfortunately, uh, this is where uh, Le Pierre starts to kind of go to pieces. And basically, I wrote in my notes, LePierre is being a bit of a dick. Yeah. Got the feeling this guy isn't used to this sort of pressure in his day-to-day -day life. His biggest concern is, will he get to a meeting on time? Is he wearing the right tie? What should he order for his first martini when he's uh, smooching with, the, uh, with his mistress or something like that? I also wrote, Woolsey, always a politician, not a compliment. And I think that's what he is. You know, he's listening to everybody than uh, manipulating people, trying to manipulate people. Some remarkable restraint, not only when talking with the various IOA people, but when Wolsey confronts her. Mm. Oh, God, she could, have, oh, she could have lost it with him there. Almost definitely. You can see there's moments where it's like, he just needs to push a little bit more, and he's going to get a punch in the face. I think it was a wise decision to not have all of the IOA go to pieces. I think just to have one of them lose it works. Yeah. Because one, you can manage. If they'd all gone to pieces, which, to be honest, would not have been an unrealistic situation because you're saying that sort of he's out of his depth. To be honest, they all are. Oh, yeah. I think having Chen and so completely superfluous to the plot that I've forgotten his name, British guy, <laughs> having them... Remain remarkably calm. I'd say stereotype, you know, the British guy, oh yeah, he, he can take anything in stride. He may not be able to do anything about it, but he's not going to panic. 
he's not going to be any trouble to the people that are trying to save his life. Shen, if you told me that she'd spent two or three years in the Chinese military or left university and went into the intelligence branch of the Chinese government, I'd believe him. Ah, and it's that French guy that loses it. I see where you're going with this. (laughs) Well, yeah, the more emotional, the more volatile. Again, yeah, dipping between stereotypes, friendly stereotypes, or downright a racist view of a certain nationality. (laughs) But then again, you could argue that the English one is just as much of a stereotype as the French. Either way, one of them had to lose it, and they decided Le Pierre was the one that, (laughs) that was it. Back outside, Cam and Tilk. Who'd have thought that I'd be having a bonding moment in this episode? Cam wants to find him an apartment. Tilk, I've tried that. It didn't work out very well. Doesn't matter, we'll get you an apartment. It's like Tilk is like, I want to be in this conversation anymore, but he won't go away. (laughs) How do I make him stop? Last time, look, I ended up paying an African prince or something. (laughs) My various... Apartment no, decorations, no, very, no, very tribal. And knocking people out with fruit, as I recall. <laughs> and, flirting, yes. and flirting heavily with Lois Lane. Well, what are you going to do? God damn, this job sucks sometimes. <laughs> uh, the ground shakes again. What they're going to do, we're not going to talk. And I think Tilk meant two things about that. Yeah, I, that was very <laughs> skillfully, we need to be quiet. And also, you need to shut up now. Yeah, that was very nicely written, very nicely delivered. SGC, very briefly, the Odyssey, ETA five hours. Oh, yeah, fair enough. And then we're back at the cave. We're talking about CR-91, full and frank disclosure of the military uh, fallback positions. The Odyssey's on the way. They could save us. They don't know we're here. They don't know we're here. They'll deploy CR-91. Oh, by the way, we can't beam down and beam up. I do love the thing in the tail there. It's like, ah, oh, the Odyssey's coming. They'll beam us up. Except <laughs> the Odyssey can't beam us up because we chose this planet specifically so they couldn't. Oh, <laughs> That's been said time and time again in most science fiction shows. You can introduce a piece of technology, but then you might spend the next two or three seasons always having to work around that technology because it makes the story too simplistic. It's like in a modern-day movie. You've got a mobile phone. There's very few circumstances where that isn't going to save your life. In the old days, I could really do with calling the police. Where's the nearest phone box? 50 minutes of the movie could be you looking for a phone. Now, oh damn, the battery's flat. And you go, your battery's flat. You didn't put it on charge every night, just to make sure. No. Oh, I've dropped it and it's fallen down a grate and it's two inches out of my... Oh God. The things they do to get out of the idea that a mobile phone would totally negate this whole scenario of the movie well that's the thing it's the bit of technology you need is always the bit that will not work it's like in star trek the usual solution is we've got warp drive let's just get the hell out of dodge what's the first bit of tech that will break yeah sorry warp drives off or ds9 with the defiant um you know how we really need to not be visible right now yeah the cloaking device is knackered Fortunately, the research, research station does have a comm unit, so if they can get there, hopefully they can contact the Odyssey. The only drawback is they're not quite sure when the Odyssey is going to get there. Sam's come up with a very, very broad projection of, well, the Odyssey would have been told we were missing at that point. Did they need to actually create the toxin? That might take an hour or two. An hour or two? Okay, fair enough. 
and then they've got to fly X amount of light years, 24,000 light years, maybe. Who knows? The actual window for actually getting a communication out and getting beamed out is very, very small. But at the same time, for all the air quote vagueness that Carter gives, you're kind of in the voyage home scenario where you feel more confident with her estimate than with someone else's sure thing. <laughs> well, she's proven reliable. But, you know, she herself has said that she's kind of made a rod for her own back on that one. You blow up one thumb and everyone expects you to walk on water. <laughs> yeah, it's the price of being good at your job. They give you more things yeah, to do. That's the thing, isn't it? You prove yourself to be good at your job. Everyone expects you to be good at your job. <laughs> but you just want Carter to go, can't I have an off day? Do you use Dr. Lee for the science? I just want to sit here and build a motorbike. Yeah, something else they did on Babylon 5. When in doubt, build a motorbike. True. So they make the decision, they're going to go to the research station. You see a nice long-range shot of the group of them walking across the countryside. I suddenly start singing, hi-ho, hi-ho, soft to work I go to myself for no apparent reason. Yeah, I know, I, I, I was thinking that, you know, you kind of almost expect Ham to start whistling at some point. And yeah. quite possibly whistling that. And of course we get Le Pierre moaning again. And then we get the, the introduction of the tree ferrets. <laughs> yeah, isn't our millimetre. Just keep your eyes out for the tree you ferrets. You watch our back, you'll hear the bugs, but the tree ferrets... <laughs> uh, he calls his bluff and basically turns his back and starts walking away. And Le Pierre, well, I may be terrified. I may be a little bit of a coward, but I ain't standing here, but sitting here by myself. Yes, that very definite... I'm 99% certain that you're bullshitting about the tree ferrets. <laughs> On the off chance you're not, wait for me! Yeah, I mean, these bugs are bad enough. And if this is possible, what else is possible? Well, exactly. I also love it when he's bitching about the fact, you know, when Carl said they're nearly there. You said that half an hour ago. And when he finally <laughs> joins the group, we're nearly there. Don't say that! <laughs> and the thing is, even when you all you can see from Amanda tapping at that point is the back of her head... You can see the grin on her face. Well, if you can't take a bit of pleasure from getting under the skin of some pompous jackass. And again, it's funny how she's taken that role from O'Neill. Yeah, that's right. That's definitely something he'd be doing. Normally, she wouldn't be. And you would argue that's because she wouldn't need to, because Jack's already got being annoying covered. But in the absence of Jack, she does sort of start taking on more of his character, which you can leave that open to interpretation. Does that mean they're a thing? Yes, no, whatever camp you're on. I'm happy for you. They continue through the woodland and the rocky outcrops. A little bit disappointed that Jen uh, loses her footing in her heels and uh, hurts her leg. Yeah. One of them had to do it. I know one of them had At to do it. At this point, but... you sat there and you think, it's too easy to make it, Jen. I wouldn't have minded if she'd been wearing boots. Have Wolsey be the one that trips. Or British guy. Or you know what? Let's actually give Pierre something to bitch about. Let's give him a broken ankle. Yeah. At least then yeah. he's got some legitimate wine. But it really does just feel it's like, oh, you're making the girl be the one that falls over. It's like, really? Somehow, though, they do make it to the research station. I like the idea that they are spread out. They're not in a group. Some are moving a little bit easier than others. Either that or a few of them are just really desperate to get to the research station. Well, also, I imagine that was probably a tactical decision. If you're a bit more spread out, it's less noise-focused in a smaller area. I mean, that's the point. They don't really understand how the bug's echolocation works, how they detect things from long distances. If they're well spread out, but they're walking at the same stride pattern, that would generate a lot of sound. 
walking all together but slightly different stride patterns that may spread it around. Either way, we know the bugs are coming for them. Mm-hmm. They're going to be coming big time. Very disappointed that Sam's doing her best. She's got the comm unit. She's going to have to work a little bit of magic. She's going to have to boost signal to break through the ionosphere. Still not sure if the Odyssey is there yet. Lapierre badgering her again. Can't keep his mouth shut and just stay out of the way. Woolsey comes to her defence. Or at least coming to her defence makes it sound like Sam's a bit weak and under too much pressure. She is under pressure, but she's not panicking. She's not losing it. Woolsey draws a line in the sand. Keep your mouth shut, sit down, let her do her work. Let the expert do what she has to do to save our lives. Unfortunately, the comm unit is generating some sort of signal which the bugs really like. God damn it. Boy, there are a lot of bugs converging on the research station. It never rains, but it pours. Thing that we need to save our lives could potentially be the thing that gets us killed. Yeah. God damn it. Okay, I can understand the idea that the bullet striking the ground generates a physical force, kinetic energy, hits the soil, it vibrates out, it repulses the bugs, fair enough. But it just looks stupid, a lot of them firing at the soil. Especially when there's surprisingly not a lot of damage being done to the ground. You would think that armor, probably armor-piercing rounds, fully automatic weaponry striking the ground would be churning up some at rotten. You almost at that point, at that point in the story, maybe you kind of need to have the bugs already on the surface. Yeah, that would make a little bit more sense. At least then you've got something as the audience to react to, other than three grown men firing blanks into the ground. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't really look good. It's like, I get what you're shooting for, pun actually not intended in that instance, but at the same time, it's like, I know the CGI hasn't been fantastic for this episode. Maybe in this instance, a little bit of it might just improved it a little bit. They haven't even got the uh, the old CGI tennis ball. This is your eye view, lads. This is follow the ball. Yeah. No, just just look at the ground and shoot it. Don't miss. And look determined, <laughs> concerned, whatever floats your boat. But main thing, shoot downwards. Running low of ammo, like they've been doing for the whole episode. They do have some C4. They equip uh, some uh, motion sensors. They bury it around the rough perimeter around the shack. Some of these start to go off. Very, very small explosions. Seem to be quite effective, though. Unfortunately, uh, the bugs start attacking them. 360 behind them, round the back. A few more explosions. Bigger explosions round the back of the search station where you don't have to worry about actors being blown up. It's funny that, isn't it? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Unfortunately, there's so many bugs, the C4 gets used up pretty darn fast. The bugs advance. The SU-1 are stepping backwards, backwards. Less and less space. This isn't looking good. My God, off the grid, they came within seconds, milliseconds of being shredded by weapons fire. Here, they're going to be eaten alive. And this one as well, it's like, we're shooting, we're shooting, we're shooting. Hey, you know how we've been saying we're running low on ammo? Guess what? The P90s are actually out of ammo now. Okay, it's handgun time. This isn't going to last long. No, it won't. If they're assault shotguns, that would have been so much better for this sort of operation. But obviously, they didn't know they're going to need this sort of operation. Maybe bringing a mixture of weapons. Cam had the right idea. Look, you bring P90s. I'll bring something a little bit different. Damn it, Cam knew the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, he's read the mission reports. He knows what can go wrong. And they get beamed out. Literally within feet of being eaten alive. Yay for the Odyssey. The timing, you couldn't have put money on it. The thing that gets me about this is you get the beam out, 
you don't get the very next theme you're expecting, which is the beam in. Yeah. It just then cuts straight to the SEC, and you're like, that's actually really abrupt. I would have liked to have had at least one scene with Emerson, maybe drawing attention to the fact um, that's two. Not to go all Harrison <laughs> Ford on me, but that's two, you owe me, Junior. But no, we just beam out. Oh, look, Cheyenne Mountain. It makes you wonder if maybe there were some cuts for time. I guess that means everything's okay then. Yay! Yeah, even to the point that we get interaction with Woolsey. Oh, yeah, don't worry, the IOA accepts the fact that this wasn't your fault. Oh, that's good of them. The bit that gets me is you might get a formal reprimand. Who's getting reprimanded for what exactly? (laughs) The person you should be reprimanding is the dumbass that decided to feed the bugs meatloaf, but I think he's already been pretty harshly dealt with. SG-1 should be getting medals. Yeah, they got given a babysitter mission with no warning. They were geared out for another operation. Pulled off that at the last second, sent to do this job, did that job to the best of their ability... Saved the lives of all the IOA members. Didn't punch any of them. By some miracle, got themselves rescued. And, and who exactly is getting the reprimand? Is it SG-1? Is it Landry? If it's Landry, why is it Landry? I don't think a reprimand is a call in order. I imagine that the IOA could get in touch with SGC and offer up some thoughts and opinions on the matter, and Landry just basically uh, rips the letter up and puts it in the bin. Sod that. Also, shred this for me. Yeah. Already done it, sir. Oh, thank you, Walter. Thank you, Walter. <laughs> the last few interactions with Wolsey, it's almost as if this is the point they decided, let's temper his character a bit. He had a frank and honest conversation with Carter, and then in the uh, research station, he not defended Carter, but he made the case for leaving SG-1 to do their job. And here, it was an eye-opening experience. And what does that say about somebody who is very bureaucratic, a desk jockey, used to working within the political circles of Washington? This is a man who had seen something that terrified him. He thought he would die. This is beyond making the wrong turn at an intersection and going down the wrong part of New York. Mm. This is so out of his experience. Well, yeah, an eye-opening experience. He has fundamentally changed at a core level. I also love the really quick reference to this in Atlantis when he's looking over Weir's shoulder and she sort of says to him, have you ever been off world? And he's like, yes, once. I nearly died. <laughs> well, yeah, that'll put you off and go, going into space, won't it? This sort of thing doesn't phase SG-1 one bit. They get confirmation that two more worlds have shown evidence of these bugs. That probably indicates that somebody is spreading it by design or maybe they're buried in some crops, dormant and... Then they get to another world and they burst out. Who knows? As you say, movie night. And what are they going to watch? Old school. Well, no. Cam's got this idea of something a little bit more entertaining. What else could it be but Starship Troopers? <laughs> I like Tilk. Is it humorous? Well, kind of. Yeah, actually. It has its moments. <laughs> it actually does. It's a very, very entertaining science fiction. It's not a good science fiction film, but it's an entertaining science fiction film. I think it's one of those things that falls into the notorious good-bad category, where yeah. it is so bad, it's actually looped in on itself and become good. I actually read the book after I watched the movie. I thought, because I watched the movie and thought, it's based on a book. Let's read that. Huh, that's different. I about to say, uh, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, how to make a film and not really take any inspiration from the book. I'll take the title, and I think that's about it. Pretty much amounts to a standalone episode. Not a bottle episode by any means. 
but standalone definitely it was still an entertaining movie but maybe a bit definitely below average it does feel like a sort of a season three or four episode yeah we're sort of starting to find our feet out there but we're not we're certainly not empire topplers at this point no it has its flaws cg being the biggest culprit and maybe some of the stereotypical acting cho- actor choices and sort of you know all oh, we'll have this character do this but as a sort of standalone episode kind of ticks all the boxes probably would end up ticking a few more if you did have it as a true standalone and lose the ori references yeah yeah certainly places you could tie it up which would give you a few extra minutes to expand upon some other ideas still essentially is alien of the week because the bugs never come back never even get mentioned so it's like why reference them being the the, the you know the, the next bit of ammo from the ori the priors aren't doing the job on their own we gave you a plague you solved that okay alien bugs next it's like you kind of wonder did they plan on having it as the ori and then we so they suddenly realized well hang on in a few episodes time we're going to give the ori ships and armies maybe alien bugs is overkill <laughs> or they got a projection of how much it would cost to do the bugs really well. They go, ooh. Maybe that's it. They said, look, this is your budget for season 10. If you, if you want to do this what you, the way you were talking about doing it, I'm not going to lie, Supergates and Ori Motherships don't come cheap. You are going to have pretty much the same budget for the bugs. Yeah, it would be an easy decision to make. We'll go with the ships. We'll go with big shiny ships for space guns because we are, after all, science fiction. Generally, it is a good standalone episode, which I think is something that season nine and ten needed a little bit more of. Seasons nine and ten were very much, if you missed an episode, unless you got incredibly lucky, you were playing catch up. At that point, the show had pretty much set its course. This was going to be heavily serialised. There was no real room for new viewers. If you're going to be new to the show, season nine was the place to start. Couldn't really come in halfway through that, which may have been one of the factors that decided that no season 11. Possible. Right then, The Scourge. An average episode for Stargate when looked at as a whole. Reasonably easy to watch episode. Good chemistry between Daniel and Shen. Good chemistry between Cam and Tilk. Woolsey. Some character growth there that pays off later in the season. I think you're right, though. I, th- I think this is the episode that starts planting the seeds for what Woolsey will become. Which is good, because great actor. He should be in more things. Mm, definitely. And given how much Star Trek is being made these days, surely there's a space for even in the animated... You can get Janeway on an animator, Joe. You'd think it's a no-brainer, but maybe because it's a no-brainer, that's, n- that's why they're not doing it. Could be. You never know. We'll just have to wait and see. Or to be brutally honest, it's entirely possible they've asked and Robert Picardo's like, I'm kind of done. Maybe, yeah. Which, I mean, to be honest, was the boat Brent Spiner was on and then apparently changed his mind. (laughs) Yeah, actually no criticism of the actor, but my guess is that they made sure the check was big enough. Mm. Okay, slap on the makeup. I think it was when they were sort of doing press tours for the Independence Day sequel. And obviously, if you're talking to Brent Spiner, you kind of have to ask, you kind of have to go TNG a bit. And they sort of said, you know, would, would you ever come back to the role? And he said it would depend very much on the format of the show. Data as an android is a character that does not age. Brent Spiner, the actor, I'm sorry to say, does not have that same get-out clause. That is the truth. Maybe the paycheck was that good. Who knows? Okay then, folks, that was The Scourge. Hope you enjoyed it. 
If you want to get in touch with us or you want to be on the show, love to hear from you. StargateArchives.com is the podcast website. Email address StargateArchives at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Tumblr and Twitter. Twitter at TheGateCast. Social media, likes, retweets, comments, share the episodes. We'd love you to do that. You can find us on TuneIn, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbay. We've got RSS manual feeds for both Saget Archives and the Gatecast. Apple Podcasts, rating and reviews, always welcome. Anything else like that, please get in touch if you want to be on the podcast to talk about Stargate. If you want to join me to talk about something that just features Stargate actors, I've done a lot of episodes of that. Mostly it has to be said the B-movies, because guess what? The B-movies, you can take 75% of the content and throw it away and not lose anything. Easy doing a 30-minute podcast about it. You can't really do that about most theatrical features. Plus, I like B-movies. I think there's an honesty with B-movies as well. They know exactly what they are. They're not embarrassed. And they're not trying to be anything else. Yeah, one of my favourite B-movies from recent years, Zombievers. Yeah, Zombie Beavers. I'm guessing the title just tells you everything you need to know. Absolutely hilarious. Very simple. Toxic waste. Falls off the back of a lorry. Goes into a river. Runs up against a beaver dam. Infects the beavers. They turn into flesh-eating zombie beavers. It's basically Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Only instead of becoming superheroes, zombies. Yes. Okay then, folks. Once again, thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of Stargate Archives. Many thanks to Tim for joining us. Thank you for picking this episode, Tim. Pretty enjoyable. I kind of feel like 9 and 10 need, they need better representation as seasons go. Well, it's true. Some people have actually said openly that they stopped watching Stargate after Richard Dean Anderson finally left. So 9 and 10 doesn't exist for him. I will hold my hands up. I got to the end of season 8 and I was mentally done with SG-1. It's like if they'd announced they were stopping there and they were just going to focus on Atlantis, I wouldn't have thought this was a bad thing. Only reason I even entertained the notion of starting season nine was because it was Ben Browder. Yeah. And he saved SG-1 because do not think you could have carried on with the season eight status quo, even if Richard Dean Anderson had wanted to stay on. Nine and ten have got the energy that the earlier seasons had. If you don't watch nine and ten because you don't like Ben Browder as an actor, that's a perfectly valid choice because you don't like something, you don't watch it. If you're not watching seasons 9 and 10 because Ben Browder is not Richard Dean Anderson, then you need to look past that because there are lots of people in the world that are not Richard Dean Anderson (laughs) and they make some damn fine TV. And, you know, if you've watched 9 and 10 and you don't like it, fine, that is great. You haven't got a control of what you like or what you don't like, which is also something that I think people on the internet seem to forget. You like what you like. It's not a choice you have. Can't disagree with anything you just said. You like what you like, and you accept that other people like things differently, and you go on with your life. Seasons 9 and 10 deserve a lot more attention than they get. Have they got clunkers? Yes. But kind of got a newsflash for you. Seasons 1 through 8 have got a lot of clunkers as well. There you go, folks. <laughs> yeah, if you don't, like you say, if you don't like Ben Browder in SG1, watch Farscape. Can't really go wrong with Farscape. Also a very good suggestion. <laughs> okay, then, that's it for us tonight. Tim, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you for putting up with me. Take care, everybody. I've been Mike. I'm Tim. Bye-bye. Bye. And there we go. Two hours 54. That's not bad for us. Yeah.